online. It's good to see most of you. I get to teach the Bible this morning, and I'm uh, pretty excited about that. It's uh, going to be a fun story. I've got to be honest, when I first kind of, you know, that kind of scripture reading, you know, she did a great job, but there's even a lot of, like, you know, details, you know, just kind of information. And this is one of those chapters, parts of it, especially the next chapter. I'm preaching chapter three as well. It's kind of like reading a phone book. You're like, this information matters to somebody. Uh, I'm not sure why I'm reading it, though. You know, and there's, there's some of those details in here, but it gets kind of just a little bit, uh, maybe if you started like a Bible reading plan at some point and you're going, I'm going to read the Bible. And then you get to some of these chapters like chapter three, and it's like Elishab, the high priest with his priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it. Uh, the sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid beams. Um, July of the son of, and it just kind of feels like, wow, this is, uh, you know, and so here's like a good kind of like Bible doctrine 101 is like all the Bible is inspired by God, but not all of it is interesting, right? So you can, if you're reading the Bible, you're like, man, this is kind of boring. Something's wrong with me. I want to say like, no, sometimes it's just not all that interesting. Um, but I'm, I'm reading this section and going, okay, like there's a reason this chapter three is in here, right? These are real people who took real responsibility and did real things. Uh, it's, but it's a pretty ordinary uh, chapter. There's not a lot of uh, super naturally interesting things. And it's actually kind of like the book of Nehemiah by itself. There's, Nehemiah is one of the few books in the Bible where nothing miraculous happens. It's a very ordinary book. You know, you read the New Testament, there's people being healed, resurrections happening, uh, storms being calmed. Uh, read the Old Testament by the word of his power. There's fire raining from heaven. You get to Nehemiah, and it's like there's a project, and they do a project. This is an ordinary book. And so trying to think through, like, how I'm going to preach this ordinary book that's just kind of something that happened, and I get to uh, kids camp this week on Monday. And I was just talking to a lot of the volunteers, you know, like over 150 volunteers at kids camp, uh, and talking to a lot of them, you know, a lot of them like middle schoolers and high schoolers who, like, their parents made them do it, you know, and you could kind of see the body language, you know. Uh, but a lot of them were there because they're excited to help, and it was pretty fun to watch. But the people that kind of made the biggest impact on me were the, the men and the women who like, t- used vacation time to come and do song and dance with not their kids. Right, and you know, some of them are like, you know, appropriately defensive, you know, like, I get six weeks vacation time. I'm like, yeah, but you use like a sixth of it to be here and do kids camp stuff and I was just kind of impressed by like the costly investment of time and energy in the sun and then we came in here and we're singing about songs about handing down ancient truths to the next generation and I kind of got emotional because I saw all these volunteers like 150 volunteers about 300 something kids doing something that was really special but it was like really really ordinary and I was over like I was overcome with all these memories of when I was a kid, because I probably would have had these memories the last two years, but two years ago is when we moved into this building, and so we kind of put a pause, and then last year, there was a big global event, or some of you, the alleged event, you know, that, that kind of, uh... <laughs> but we didn't, have a, we didn't have a kids camp last year, this year we had a kids camp, you know, and so we're doing the kids camp thing, and it was, uh, I was just remembering, like, I had these memories of being like six years old, doing, going on a bear hunt, you know, and... <laughs> this little thing, and just the ordinariness of it. And so I, I feel like it was, to some degree, just got in God's design that this, like, really impactful, really meaningful, but really ordinary thing called Kids Camp, uh, put on by hundreds of volunteers the week of. You know, I remember, if you heard last week, there's this whole pirate ship-looking thing in here that was decked out, and I saw 
you know, 20 to 40 volunteers at a time building all week long leading up to the thing. And it just, a lot happened, but it was, none of it was like someone did it. It wasn't like the word of the Lord went forward and then there's a pirate ship. You know, there was a lot of people gave time. And just the ordinariness of it all, right? And what we're going to see in this text is that uh, Nehemiah's a pretty ordinary guy. Artaxerxes is an ordinary but pagan, mostly godless king. And God uses him. And then a lot of ordinary people do a lot of ordinary little things. And that's the way that God works. And so the big idea we're going to hit in Nehemiah 2 and 3 is that God ordinarily works through ordinary acts done by ordinary people. That's just true. God, sometimes you get like the Genesis 1 and 2 thing where God's creating out of nothing. We see that happen. God still does miracles. But ordinarily, his default mode is he, is he delegates work to his people, us. And we get busy and we do stuff. And it's through ordinary people carrying responsibility and doing things. That's the main way that God works. And so I want us to be a church, a place where we're content with doing ordinary things to the glory of God. There's a lot of flashy, fast, famous, Instagrammable pull, right? But most of the ordinary work of God is ordinary acts done by ordinary people like you and me. And I want to see that in this text. So I'm going to kind of talk a little bit about like what's the big deal with the walls. And then I'm going to look at a lot of the ordinary things that God uses in chapters 2 and 3. So let me pray and then we'll dive in. All right, Jesus, thank you for Redemption Gateway and who we are and how I get to be part of us. Uh, I pray that you will encourage our hearts and that you'll move us. Uh, because of uh, this text, I ask you to help us be faithful people as a result of being here this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So the first question I have is like, why the walls? What's the big deal with the walls? Some of the questions we've kind of been getting with Nehemiah. Like the, so the people are making a really big deal about we need to rebuild the walls. It's not, you know, save Jerusalem. It's not yet a big repentance project, but it's like the walls are broken and the walls are the problem. We see that in chapter 1, verse 3. And they said to me, the remnant um, in the province who'd survived is in exiles in great trouble in great shame, right? Trouble is the situation. Shame is the social experience of the situation, right? Shame is like feeling overexposed. Like there's like this they're, uh, they're uncovered in a way that they're not supposed to be uncovered. So there's trouble and there's shame. Not just problems, but there's problems that make you feel um, vulnerable. Um, later on, we see in chapter 2, verse 17, it says, Let us build the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer suffer derision or suffer shame. Something about the wall being broken equals Israel is experiencing shame or derision or suffering. So it's not just, but the walls mean more than what they are. We know this is true about walls, right? There's people who would love to, you know, rip a couple verses out of context here and say like, so we should build the wall too, right? That's, uh, if you want to read the Bible that way, um, you'll be lonely, you know, but that's, that's kind of how it goes. There's like this, we should build the wall too. But you think about in like 2016, 2017, there's all this drama about the wall to our southern border, build the wall, don't build the wall. And so much of the tension around the wall was related to the meaning of the wall, not the wall itself. What does the wall symbolize? What does it mean? What's the narrative surrounding it, right? And I talked to whole groups of people, a lot of individuals, who would talk about how the wall represented, will we be a nation of order or a nation of chaos? Will we be a nation of laws or a nation of lawlessness? And so if that's the narrative, then wall equals good. Right? And there's a whole other groups of people, a lot of my close friends, who the wall, narrative wall was more, will this be a nation that welcomes brown people like me? 
or is this a nation not for people like me? And if that's a narrative you bring to the wall, then obviously the wall is bad. And so seeing these different types of people, it was not should we have a wall, period. It was what does the wall mean? How does the wall shape our understanding of what's going on? And so it's similar like with the nation of Israel. There's this wall, but it's not just the wall, but it's what the wall represents, what the wall is supposed to mean. And understand that we have to back up a bit on like what is Israel supposed to be? A huge question that marks the whole Old Testament is the issue of Israel's faithfulness. Israel's blessed to be a blessing. They're called to be a light to the nations. They're supposed to be showing the godless world what it could look like to live under God's good reign. Rather than doing what's right in your own eyes, you could live under God's reign and do what's right in God's eyes. And so the wall is this symbol of we are not being defiled by the pagan nations that are all around us. It's a picture of moral purity. We are going to be who God has called us to be and not be uh, defiled by these false God worshipers all around us. And so they're going, the wall is this picture of commitment to the Lord. And the destruction of the law, of the wall, is actually a commitment, is a picture of the ways that they've been unfaithful to the Lord. And so the wall being broken down is a picture of Israel is broken down morally. It's part of the judgment, right? If you're unfaithful to me, I'll send you out in exile. Basically, if you're not committed to being a distinct people who can be a light to the nations, then I'll make sure your wall goes away so you're no longer a distinct people. We see that this equation of like the walls flourishing with Israel flourishing in the book of Isaiah. It says this in Isaiah 49. Um, I have engraved you in the palms of my hands. This is kind of like looking forward to that time when Israel is going to be restored in a meaningful way. Your walls are continuing before me. So the parallelism there is me thinking of Israel. This is God speaking. God speaking, thinking of Israel is God thinking about Israel's boundaries, where Israel starts, where Israel stops. Right? A lot of times, like when you have to go to therapy, a lot of it's kind of you working through your boundaries. Who am I? Who am I not? Who do other people want me to be versus who am I? And that's a lot what Israel's dealing with. The big question in the whole Old Testament is, will Israel be a light to the nations or will the nations pull Israel into their darkness? And we find ourselves in this moment of exile because Israel has been pulled into the darkness, therefore their walls are broken down. So he says, your builders make haste, your destroyers and those who laid waste to you go out from you, lift up your eyes and see, they all gather, they come to you. So the, the whole idea here is the walls are not meant to keep the nations out but eventually the nations would flock into Israel and become a part of those people who want to follow under the lordship of God. So it's not about keeping people out, it's about keeping people's idols out. So Israel's walls being break, broken down is pictured of the idols of the nations have dominated Israel. And that's why they're in this situation. And that's what you're seeing later on and why the book of Nehemiah ends in a failure is they keep letting the idols of the nations in. So when this coming to the project of rebuilding the walls happens, it's not just a, we need to have the wall built so that we can like have a nice looking wall. It's this picture of, we need to be a faithful people who really submit to the lordship of God rather than kind of the false and God's all around us. Probably the closest thing we do to that as a church. So the, the, the application here is not, we should build a wall on our southern border. That's more of a socio-political question than it is a biblical question. The, the real question is kind of like we talk about how in communion um, we fence the table. I don't know if you guys noticed that, but it's like if you're not a Christian, please don't pretend to be one and take communion, right? So historically the church has called that fencing the table, meaning uh, let's as Christians do this, and, but if you're not a Christian, please don't come to this table. You're not, 
that, that's probably the closest parallel. Like rebuilding of the walls is kind of like we want the church to be pure. We want us to be really committed to the Lordship of Jesus. We don't want to just be stained by the world in any type of like view of our life sense. So they're coming to rebuild these walls as a way of recommitting to the Lord and trying to take their place as being a light to the nations. Rather than being sucked into the world by the nations, we want to be a light to the nations. And so how does God do that? He does it with a bunch of ordinary people doing ordinary things ordinarily. And the first ordinary thing that God uses is grief. First ordinary thing God uses is grief. Uh, so we see in chapter 1, verse 4, it says, As soon as I heard these things, Nehemiah says this, I sat down and wept and mourned four days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, In the month of Nisan, which is four months later. So for four months, Nehemiah is emotionally affected by the state of destruction of Jerusalem, and he has nothing to do about it. A lot of you hate grieving and hate weeping and hate lamenting because you're like, what's the point? What does it serve? It's not productive, which is true in a sense. But part of being a healthy person is being rightly affected by reality. So um, just this past week on Thursday morning, I was at the gym and we had this, uh, we're doing rope climbs. And so the rope we had, was a 15 foot ceiling and a 20 foot rope, which meant the rope hit the ground and there's like a five foot tail, if that makes sense. Before the workout, I was looking at it and I was thinking, that makes me anxious. I'm gonna roll my ankle on that rope. And then I did the workout, and then I dislocated my ankle on the rope. And I was like, I should have been more anxious, because if I was more anxious, I would have paid more attention, and I wouldn't have been stupid, you know? And now I'm like hobbling around and being really, and it's annoying, and it's a, if I had just paid more attention to my anxiety, then I would have been less foolish climbing the ropes. And so the, the whole idea of emotions is they kind of draw your attention to a part of reality. And emotions can become disordered in a way that they're not connected to reality, and there's work that needs to be done there, but um, having emotions is not a disorder like a lot of us in this room might think it is. Nehemiah grieves, and part of what happens is he grieves and he has nothing to do. He has no power, he has no position, but all he really has is proximity. But even then, so there's like this kind of attention-seeking grief thing that, you know, those of you with social media might kind of engage in, which is like rather than kind of in a healthy way being seen and known by people that you're in real relationships with, you kind of like poke yourself in the eye then take a picture of your tears and post it on Facebook for attention. You know, that's, I know some of you have thought about doing that. You know, this is how I'll get seen, you know. This kind of attention-seeking grief thing, you know, like I don't really know how to process this healthily with people, so I'm going to kind of blast it all over social media. That's not what Nehemiah is doing here. He's actually like trying to allow his grief to be between him and the Lord in a really meaningful way. Chapter 2, we see that um, he says, I had not been sad in his presence, meaning he's going, I don't really want to just don sackcloth and ashes and be dramatic in front of the king. Like I'm not trying to be grieved for the purpose of it being strategy. I'm grieved because it's worth grieving about, right? His sadness is not a tactic, it's just a reality. And this is one of the things we see in the next part that God uses is this idea of attunement. Artaxerxes, who's a pagan, who's not following the Lord, still is in the image of God, and so we can learn things from people who don't follow Jesus or follow the Lord, um, because they're still made in the image of God, and there's ways that they represent God to us. And so look at in chapter 2, verse 2, the king is attuned. So attunement is language that like psychologists or therapists will use to describe um, kind of being in touch with someone else's emotions, right? It's not being a mind reader but it's being present to someone else in a way that you can tell when they're affected by something positively or negatively. So Artaxerxes, this pagan king who's not right with the Lord, is attuned, right? It says, 
Chapter 2, verse 2. The king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is sadness of heart. So you can tell. Nehemiah is kind of trying to conceal. He's trying to be professional in the workplace. Uh, but Artaxerxes knows him. He sees him. He's like, something's going on. What's happening here? And this is one of the things that God uses. He's, God uses curiosity. See, curiosity is the opposite of uh, being an arrogant know-it-all. <laughs> right? One of my buddies, remember telling me when I first met him a while ago, he's like, because he, he's, a, he's a pure-hearted, holy person, he's like, I'm pretty naturally curious. And I was like, well, it's actually unnatural to be curious because when you have everything figured out and you've already judged people accurately and you basically know the answers, then you're not curious. And so uh, at the time, I was like, hmm, I'm not naturally curious. <laughs> you know, so, oh, well, I'm just not naturally curious. He's naturally curious. Therefore, I'm off the hook. But over time, I realized that my lack of curiosity was rooted in my being really quick to fill in the gaps with assumptions and having the answers. And so here we see Artaxerxes, God using Artaxerxes' questions. What if... Artaxerxes never asked Nehemiah, hey, what's going on with your sadness? What if that never happens? Then the book of Nehemiah is really short or doesn't exist, you know, and then Nehemiah was sad, next book, right? That's, that's what it is. But Nehemiah asked the question, or Artaxerxes asked the question, hey, you have sadness of heart, what's happening? Then Nehemiah says, you know, um, Jerusalem's in shambles and it's breaking my heart. And then verse four, Artaxerxes answers again. So this is the next thing we do sometimes is we notice someone's sad and they say, hey, you're sad, what's making you sad? And they tell you and then you go, oh, I know what you need. And you assume you know what they need. And then you, you know, but Artaxerxes doesn't do that. He says, what are you requesting? He's kind of letting Nehemiah be the expert on his own situation. The pagan Artaxerxes king is going, what do you want? This is actually one of the questions Jesus asks all the time. What do you want me to do for you? And so this is kind of a crazy text here where you have pagan king, Persian oppressive Artaxerxes king doing things that are like Jesus even though he's not even a little bit interested in following Jesus, right? People not knowing God and people being sinners doesn't equal they can't teach you anything about God. They do need to repent and believe in Jesus, but we can't go around going, oh, that person's Christian, therefore they're awesome for sure. That person's not a Christian, therefore they're not awesome for sure. Uh, he's, he's showing himself to be a pretty wise, good leader. He's generally a good king. Like this is, a lot of you who are in leadership positions, if you were just rightly attuned and curious to people who work for you, you would immediately go up three notches on how good of a leader you are. Especially you fathers and mothers. Like, are we doing this? It's kind of basic stuff. What do you want me to do for you? And then he asks another question later on. Um, he says, how long are you going to be gone? So he's kind of... Artaxerxes mostly asks a lot of questions, which is kind of like what Jesus does in the New Testament. Again, Artaxerxes is not committed to the mission of God at all, but God uses Artaxerxes' curiosity to further his mission. And in the face of that curiosity, it'd be tempting to kind of, you know, we do this all the time, you know, you, you get discovered as being sad, you're, you're, you're sad, and someone's like, hey, what's going on? Unless you're sad. And we, the most common thing that people do in that moment is lie, you know, fine, fine. No, nothing. You know, I'm sad. What do we do for you? Nothing. You know, and we kind of are content in our own pity party thing, but Nehemiah actually responds to the question of curiosity with a ton of courage, a lot of courage. He asks big, asks really big questions to Artaxerxes. So God's going to use Nehemiah's courage. Here's what's crazy. So Nehemiah is asking Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, I want to go rebuild the walls. 
Now, the reason we know this is a huge question and this is a big ask is because all these other people later on are assuming that rebuilding the walls in Jerusalem equals rebelling against the Persian Empire. All right, so he's basically asking the king, like, hey, you know that thing that's going to make you look like a weak leader? I want to go rebuild those walls. Scary question. That's one they say later on is the people ask him, like, what is he doing rebelling against the king? Chapter 2, verse 19. These Ammonite people jeer him and taunt him. Said, what are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Nehemiah knows what it's going to look like to rebuild a wall. It would be kind of like if Tucson, you know, put up a wall and took down the Arizona flag. You'd be like, what is this? Is this secession? What's happening here? That's what Nehemiah's asking Artaxerxes. Hey, I want to go build the wall back up. Big question. Next question, they go like, hey, um, I want to rebuild the wall. This happens in verse 5. Then later on, he asks another question. He says, I want to go to, this is verse 7, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me from governors of the province and beyond, meaning give me a lot of authority. Write letters to these governors saying, Nehemiah has license to do stuff in my kingdom. So he asks for an offensive thing. He asks for authority. And then the really big ask is you get in verse 8, and he says, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make the beams for the gates. He's, so Nehemiah basically goes and says, I'm going to build a wall. I'm going to make Persia pay for it. Give me the resources. And so all these major, big questions, offensive, um, authoritarian, um, economic, he's asking the king these big questions. And he'd go, what if Nehemiah didn't have the courage to ask these big questions of the king? Again, it'd be a short book. It'd be even more ordinary. Some of us need to ask bigger questions. Just because you work in a pagan workplace where people don't love or follow Jesus doesn't mean you can't ask big things of your employers. Some of you have been waiting to ask that question that you know will get you more influence in the institution. And I just know some of you that if you were, had more authority, the institution would be better off. Some of you have been like slow and you've lacked the courage to ask the bold question that can maybe just get rejected. I was, after the nine o'clock, Rochelle Biller came up to me and, and she says, one of the things I tell my kids is if you never ask, then the answer is always no. What are they going to say, no? I want us to be a place where we ask courageous, big questions of people in authority in hopefully a way that's meant to serve people. We're not just serving ourselves, we're trying to serve others. You might as impossibly courageous in all this. Where's an area in your life that you lack courage? Some of you know right now, there's this question I need to ask my boss. There's this question I need to ask my wife. I need to ask my husband. I need to ask my children. I need to ask my parents. But you've just been, you've lacked the courage. God ordinarily works through ordinary people doing ordinary things like asking questions and courage. I was thinking about what if Luke Simmons never asked the elders at East Valley Bible Church, now Redemption Gate, Gilbert, I want, can I plant a church? Then this place doesn't exist. You know, at kids camp, we have this great, super cool pirate guy running around, Andrew Manch, the whole time. What if nobody asked Andrew Manch to be the pirate? Kids camp would have been worse. You gotta ask, you gotta do it. Let's be courageous, let's be bold. God uses it. The last thing that God uses, which I think is a big deal, is that he uses humility. One of the things that stuck out to me in reading the Boringer section, chapter three, which I mentioned earlier, not that interesting, still inspired, is, is uh, I'm gonna read chapter three, kind of a handful of verses and the kind of punch that I'll get there. Chapter three, verse four. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Mez. 
Meshes of all repaired, and next to them Zadok, son of Bena, repaired, and next to them the Tekoites repaired. But, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Everyone else in chapter 3 gets named and known and remembered for doing ordinary acts of little bits of faithfulness, but the nobles don't get named, they kind of just get shamed. But they're too good to participate. They were above that work that was beneath them. The nobles did not stoop to serve the Lord. And you read this whole chapter 3, and what you see is a lot of people serving outside their primary callings and giftings. You see priests, goldsmiths, high priests, merchants, temple servants, administrators, all building walls. It's not the wall builders built the walls. It's all kind of the people did an all-hands-on-deck thing, and they built the gates and the walls. It kind of takes more humility to serve outside your natural gifting or calling because you tend to not be as good at it. You're like, well, I can't do that. I'm not as good. Right, but this carrying responsibility outside your like, kind of central calling or gifting is one of the main ways that God accomplishes his ordinary work in the world. Like I think about every Sunday here at church, the people who are like serving on our tech and AV team, I think none of them are professional AV people. I think about people serving our kids' ministry. I think some very small percentage of them are like teachers. Most of them are just humble and willing to be used by God. The thing is like, so kind of the implicit thing is all these people are stooping to serve the Lord, but only the nobles consider it stooping to serve the Lord. Everyone else just considers it serving the Lord. Like there is no stooping like you don't humble yourself to serve God. You just are not a crazy person and you serve God. I think about a lot of you who are like newer Christians or maybe you're newer to this church or you kind of want to grow. A lot of people presume that the main way growth happens is by like studying your way into the kingdom. Right? And I think study is a good deal. You know, sitting under preaching, being in studies. But most of the time, if you want to be like Jesus, the suffering servant, you serve your way into Christlikeness. You don't study your way into Christlikeness especially those of you who are like less committed to church than you want to be. Maybe you're like a three times a month attender before COVID, now you're one and a half times a month attender based on like how you feel in the morning or something like that. So it's like it's taking responsibility, owning the deal. Like I think about the uh, uh, verse 14. Malkijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakirim, repaired the dung gate. The dung gate is exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> if you've got to do your business, you go out that gate with a little shovel and you come back in after you've done your business. Right? Ruler of the district repairing the dung gates. Like I think about my son's been going to the uh, infant class, toddler's class. Like that's the dung gate, right? That's <laughs> you. You're handling... The dung, like, <laughs> someone's got to do it. And I just think about the ordinary, I'm, gonna be, I'm content to do the ordinary thing for the Lord. Like, it's, it's not about who's beneath it, who's above it. It's about um, sometimes the question is not, what do I want to do? Sometimes the question is, what is the need? How can I help? And all these people in chapter 3, the main question is, what's the need? Not, what do I want to do? 
And I, I think that it's great to find ways that serve in line with passion and calling and gifting, but sometimes it's just what's the need? And I think that's the spiritual formation, meaning becoming like Christ, value of just taking responsibility and serving the way that there's needs is a way to practice being like Jesus. And so I just hope that some of you who are listening to this go, I'm gonna serve in kids. Well, why? Because there's a need and you can meet the need. Not because you have this passion for children, right? I have a child and I mostly just have passion for him and if other people are like around, I'm okay with it. You know, that's... But nobody's, nobody's also signing me up to babysit their kids, right? So, so what's the need is a big question. It takes humility, right? If there's, think about, is there th- something in this church that you think, I don't think I'd do that. Maybe for your own growth in Christ-likeness, that's the thing you should do. To grow in humility. That's, that's part of the process, part of the deal. And even like Kids Camp's example of that, kids ministry, guest services, there's a lot of like needs that help us do this. If everybody, like if everyone in this room all of a sudden became like the nobles and said, I'm not gonna stoop to serve the Lord, our church would just like cease to exist. Like very fast. Like there's a lot of moving pieces that help us hopefully be a welcoming, hospitable place that loves people well. And that's humility. And so what we see is like God uses all these different little ingredients, humility, grief, courage, curiosity. But here's what I want us to be slow to on this is I know a lot of people or places or churches that have all of that and their churches are like really struggling still. All the right inputs, and it's still like, it's hard, right? Our church is mostly, like, there, it, last year was hard for, like, everybody in the world and church, most all churches in the world, but we're, we haven't had to fire anybody. You know, we, I know a cu- couple of my good buddies, like, had to shut their churches down because, like, where they live and the regulations and all this whatever stuff and can't rent from schools anymore, and so we've been mostly just, Blessed, and I don't want us to say if we just do the right stuff, then it goes well. Right? So there's a formula I have here is that grief plus courage plus curiosity plus humility equals nothing. <laughs> so the reason I want us to look at all this is that this is not about tactics, it's about faithfulness. That we could do all the right things and still experience only difficulty, only setbacks only problems. And that's why I think even though this book is mostly about ordinary things, ordinary people, there's a couple highlights here that really uh, Nehemiah is still going, we're going to do the faithful thing, uh, but God is sovereign over how he uses it. So in chapter 2, verse um, 8, the end of that verse, it says, and God, after he asked these big courageous questions, says, and God and the king granted me what I asked for, because, not because I asked well, not because I asked encouraged, not because I had polished my rhetoric, not because God rewards those who do good things, but because the good hand of God was upon me. It's not because of the input that it's blessed, it's blessed so the input creates something. Likewise, we see in verse 17, you see the trouble we're in. Now Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall that may no longer suffer derision. And I told them the hand of my God had been on me. And they said, now let's rise and build. Likewise, in verse 20, it says, I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and the servants will rise and build. The God of heaven will make us prosper and his servants will get to work and build. It's both. 
So the real formula I want us to recognize here is that grief plus courage plus curiosity plus humility plus the hand of God equals something. That we need to be preoccupied with faithfulness, recognizing that sometimes God blesses faithfulness with fruitfulness. If we just shoot at fruitfulness, we can't control that. We don't control outcomes, but we have opportunities to influence inputs. And so we as Redemption Gateway, we want to be a faithful people who fear the Lord and do what's right in humility and courage. But that's not a cause and effect straight line. Sometimes churches work in labor. Like I was even, uh, I'm aware of a number of people who have like been church planners in hard or unreached places and they're faithful for 20 years, 10 years, and see no conversions. Some of you have been praying for your kids who have wandered away from the faith for 30 years, and they're not close to wandering back. Some of you invited your neighbors to church a dozen times. They've not set foot here yet. Some of you have been praying for your parents for a very long time, and they're still the way that they are. Does that mean we stop? Does it mean we quit? Does it mean we give up till God gives us what we want? No, it means that we proceed in faithfulness, asking the Lord for his hand to be upon it because he's the one who controls outcomes. So I hope that we as Redemption Gateway can be a place where ordinary people during ordinary acts is something that we're committed to, that we're content with that. And we say, Lord, move, please. And I do think the hand of God is upon us in a really cool way. Like a lot of you I know, and a lot of you I don't know, you're new. And I feel like God's bringing people to us. And we're being built together into a faithful family that's going to hopefully be a light to the nations rather than being dragged into the darkness of the nations. And that's what we're trying to do. But we have to yield and say we want to do our best and trust God with the results. So God ordinarily works to ordinary people doing ordinary acts. And I hope that some of you will take a step and do something ordinary in a regular way for the Lord. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for Redemption Gateway. Thank you for this people. Thank you for um, this space we get to gather and worship. I ask that you'd give us a real vision for being ordinary and that we'd be content with that. I pray that you'd give us a clear line for what you're asking us to do and what you're not asking us to do and that overall we'd be encouraged as your people. In your name we pray, amen. I'm Mark.